spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. All right, Team Buck, welcome to Hour 3 today in the Freedom Hut. Great to have you with me, as always. Uh, just a reminder that I will be in for Rush tomorrow on the EIB 12 to 3, coast to coast. Uh, always a great time. Uh, always such an honor and a privilege. So much fun to do uh, Rush's show and uh, hang out with his team. They're great guys, and I, I really enjoy being over there. So, uh, of course, if you get a chance, uh, you can tune in and I love. I feel like the team is with me whenever I'm over there. You know, the team Buck. It's like having a, a section for family and friends when you're a tennis player, or I don't. I guess they have that for football. They probably have that for all professional athletes. Uh, I don't know. I didn't go pro, unfortunately, um, but that will be tomorrow. So there will be there won't be a freestyle Friday per se this week. We've sort of spread out much of the freestyle freestyle segments throughout the week. A sprinkling of freestyle here and there for all of you. Um, I wanted to get back into uh, this one Trump move that is increasingly going to come under a lot of media scrutiny. And I remember during the earlier days of the campaign, right, so back during the primary, you would hear a lot about how Trump's Muslim ban just proved what a a fascist he was and what an evil, terrible man he was. And I remember going on TV and saying over at CNN and saying at the time, this is going to be something that is an evolving. I said something along these lines a long time ago. I don't remember exactly. But I, was like, Look, I don't think the Muslim ban is good. I think it's counterproductive to ban an entire religion from entry into the country, uh, which was not the way the administration kept the position. for. They didn't keep it that way for very long. And then they started to focus in a little bit more, and we started to hear about how the administration was going to ban people from certain countries. And then that was said to be also unfair and wrong, and what are we going to do about the poor refugees? There's so many aspects of this discussion, this debate, that I think are are misrepresented. One of them is, why is it that the U.S. is the country that, given what we've seen happen in Europe— there's a real argument to be made, and it's one that some folks are still very uncomfortable with, that taking taking people, even refugees, and there's a, a tremendous, we should have a tremendous amount of human, you know, basic human sympathy for anybody who's in a horrific and, and dangerous and deadly situation like the Syrian refugees and people from other conflict nations are in. I get that. But we also have to look at the way that refugees can integrate into new cultures. And it's tough to see if you're coming from a a traditional, you could say, orthodox Muslim background in Syria. And you've been through a lot of horrific violence and you only speak Arabic. The, the notion that you're going to thrive in the United States, that that might be a bit of a reach. It would seem that there's an argument at least to be made that other Muslim-majority countries, Arabic-speaking countries, would be a much better place for those refugees to go for for everyone, for everyone's sake. And I know that there'll be some who say, well, Buck, that is happening. Look at Jordan. Well, Jordan's bursting at the seams with refugees already, and they don't make them Jordanians necessarily. This is, this is another very interesting 
part of this discussion that you don't hear much about. I've been to those refugee camps, as you know, or I've been to the biggest one, Zatari, on the Syria-Jordanian border. I went a couple of years ago for the blaze. And it's a sobering experience, to be sure. And it's one that if you work in media and you're going to cover wars, I think you should go see what the uh, the wages of war, in a sense, are in the consequences that people suffer when they're in these refu- when they're forced in these refugee camps and the the damage that's done to their lives. Um, that's something that people should see. They should be aware of. Uh, but when I look at this, I think to myself, well, the Jordanians aren't even processing them to be permanent residents of Jordan. They're just holding them here with the idea they want to go back to Syria. And a lot of them said at the time to me, through a translator, that their goal was not to get to to Germany or the U.K. or the United States. Their goal is to just stay alive and stay safe with their families until they could return to Syria. So the refugee camps in Turkey and in Jordan are really more like holding areas for people, safe zones, and not the safe zones that we were thinking about creating in Turkey or, or in Syria, rather, along the Turkish border as a, with a no-fly zone. Um, but these are really holding areas. They're not about permanent residency. And the Obama administration, of course, pushed to increase the number of refugees from Syria specifically, but overall the number of refugees in pretty dramatic fashion. And there's no discussion with them about, well, what, what does this do to assimilation and what about the security risks? And then you got into the whole, oh, there's no security risk from refugees in these countries. That's just nonsense. That's bigotry. That's hatred. That comes from a dark place that we shouldn't give a public hearing to. Uh, let me just give you this from the Los Angeles Times. Federal agents are reinvestigating Syrian refugees in the U.S. who may have slipped through vetting laps. Um, agents have not concluded that any of the refugees, this is from the Los Angeles Times, that any of the refugees should have been rejected for entry, but the apparent glitch, which was discovered in late 2015 and corrected late last year, prevented U.S. officials who conducted background checks on the refugees from learning about possible derogatory information on them, the two officials said. At a minimum, the intelligence would have triggered further investigation that could have led some asylum applications to be rejected. The refugees whose cases are under review include one who failed a polygraph test when he applied to work at a U.S. military installation overseas, and another one who may have been in communication with an Islamic State leader, according to the officials who spoke in the condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to discuss the matter. This is all from the Washington Times. So this raises questions. I'm sorry, the uh, Los Angeles Times. This raises questions. If we're already looking at Syrian refugees that have made their way into the U.S. and saying some may have slipped through the cracks, and when you're talking about maybe being in contact with an Islamic State leader, that's pretty serious derogatory information. This is, this is not something to be taken lightly at all. There do seem to be vetting gaps. The screening process, you could say, is indeed more than just imperfect. It's unacceptable in its current form. Now, I mentioned before the numbers with Obama. LA Times writes here, the President Obama ramped up the acceptance of Syrians late last year to address the humanitarian crisis in that country, admitting 15,479 Syrian refugees, which is a 606% increase over the number in 2015. Since the Civil War started, the U.S. has accepted more than 17,000 Syrians seeking asylum. That's according to the State Department. 
and the vast majority pose no threat, according to officials. Now, I think that that's true. I think we can say the vast majority do pose no threat. But as a country, we are allowed to have a conversation about whether or not we want to put ourselves in a position where even that small threat is something that we have to endure. We have control as a sovereign state over who comes and who goes. And when you're talking about refugees and asylum seekers, this is just the good grace of the American people on offer via the U.S. government. I think one of the parts of Obamaism when it comes to refugees and this particular situation, one of the parts of this that was uh, important to a lot of Trump voters was the sense that the disconnected elites who make the decisions about refugee policy don't have any idea, know nothing about what it's like to, in real life, deal with refugees in your schools, in your neighborhood, and they also have this ideological position that Islamic countries are not more likely to send people into the United States who are a terrorist threat. And you look at the numbers, I think it was just in the last couple of days, it was maybe Jane's Intelligence. I thought it might be the State Department uh, terror report, but I think it was Jane's Intelligence. Did a whole piece on where terrorism is happening most in the world. Terrorism is lethal terrorism, not, oh, someone said something mean to me because I was wearing a Bernie Sanders shirt. You know, not stuff like that, but lethal terrorism, violence, murder done in the name of a political ideology. When you frame it that way, the Islamic, uh, the Islamic world, unfortunately, is the wellspring of far too much of this stuff, and it is disproportionate. These are just facts. Places like Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan are suffering from much more terrorism in their own borders, but also exporting it around the world. And we've seen this now in uh, European capitals. We've seen this in Turkey, these mass casualty attacks. And there's this despicable game the media likes to play of, oh, well, let's not, you know, let's not jump to any conclusions. Let's not start to... Uh, pretend that we can know who might be behind any of this, you know, because that's the real threat. That also adds into people not trusting the administration to handle terrorism as an issue in general. That is a part of this whole discussion. That is an issue that comes up here. And when people don't trust the elites, those who are making policy about immigrants and immigration, to be honest about the threat and to be honest with the American people about what's really going on, then you have a situation where, you know, people are voting for Trump. They just, they, they don't, they don't want to hear it. They don't want the soft peddling. They don't want the nonsense. They just want someone who will give them a straightforward reading, a straightforward approach to dealing with these problems and who will speak about it openly and honestly. So the Muslim ban has now evolved into a ban on immigrants, a temporary ban on immigrants from seven countries. And no one has no, no foreigner has a right to come to the United States. If we improve the vetting procedures and they're and, and security professionals are allowed to really weigh in on this and they're not just uh, they're not just forced into pretending that this is all going to be OK. Well, then it's 
something that can be reversed. It's a, it's a temporary ban. This is not supposed to be a forever thing. This is supposed to just be a let's not allow infiltration of this country by ISIS fighters. They've been doing this in Europe. This isn't some theory that's been concocted. This isn't some fever swamp dream. This isn't some uh, crazy cockamamie novel idea that's now made its way into the discussions about policy. The truth is that in Europe, there have been mass casualty attacks that have occurred because of refugees. And the United States taking in the same kind of refugees is a big problem. By the way, keep in mind, it's not just the refugees that we take. It's also the U.S. immigration system, which allows those who have family in this country to go to the front of the line for bringing in more people. So if you bring in 15,000 Syrians and then they all want to bring in their uncles, daughters, wives, cousins, whatever it may be, you're going to take in a lot more than that. And it is not incumbent upon the American people to take risks that they don't want to take just because there is this humanitarian impulse. We are a country of very decent and considerate people. And it's it's not about racism. It's not about xenophobia. And everyone got sick of that. I know I got sick of it. I certainly got sick of the discussion we would constantly hear that the problem with Islamic terrorism is that the countries that are bringing in these refugees aren't nice enough to the refugees. I would think that if a country took you in and saved you from a horrible fate, perhaps the murder of of one person and their entire family, there would be a lot of gratitude for that country. But just pick up a, a paper, and if you can if you can read in some of these European languages, read it in the original, but you can see it in translation, and we pick it up sometimes in our own media, of what the real situation has been with, with refugees that have been taken in. So Trump's going to try this policy for a while. I mean, Obama took in 15,000 refugees. So you can say that that's, there's a risk inherent in all that, but let's not pretend like this is solving the Syrian conflict or this is saving huge numbers of people. This is all about risk mitigation, and we can have open and honest discussions about that, I would hope, under the Trump administration, without it turning into just finger-pointing and Islamophobia and xenophobia and all the other things that are trotted out there. Uh, Team, I've got a lot more, 888-900-3393 on those phone lines. Be back in just a few. Lex Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. probably go check out some of these movies that are out that people say are really good. I, I don't usually talk to you that much about movies here on the show, but um, Ms. Molly saw La La Land, said it was great, but if I was going to see that one, I think I would, because uh, the Oscars are coming up pretty soon, right? So 
Um, but yeah, uh, La La Land is supposed to be a good movie. I, I'm usually not a musical person, though. I, I just generally can't get excited about watching a, a musical. It's just not not in my in my uh, in my in, not in my wheelhouse. We could put it that way. Uh, there are some exceptions to that, and you know, even sometimes a cartoon musical, I will make exceptions for Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast. Uh, but the movie Arrival is um, also supposed to be really good. I've heard that that is, that is excellent. So I'm thinking about checking that one out too. And then I know there's a movie called The Dog's Purpose, which I have not seen, um, but I feel like we all know what A Dog's Purpose is, right? I hope you all enjoyed the part of the show yesterday where we talked about pit bulls. Fascinating to me that there's such a, a high... People get really invested in that because, look, I, I understand, right? If you love your dog, and if especially you love your dog and it's a pit bull, you don't want to hear people saying that the breed is a danger and that they're bad. And uh, but very, very fierce de- debate and discussion on that one. And it is interesting to me because it does sometimes mirror some of the language you'll hear in the in the gun debate. It's about being a response. You, know, you can be a responsible gun owner. You can be a responsible pit bull owner. Both can be dangerous under the wrong circumstances. I'm not saying these are the same discussions. I'm just saying that you, the way that it gets framed, because you, 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 the news reports are about irresponsible pit bull owners usually or people that are using pit bulls for illicit purposes. But, of course, most of the time, a vast majority of them are safe and cute and friendly and everything is, is fine. So uh, the, the dog discussion very quickly turns into a uh, – that gets – that gets politicized. Uh, that gets uh, people really, really fired up when it comes to pit bulls. I've always found, I, I find that uh, Doberman pinchers put me a little bit more on edge. There's just something, Dobermans look a little scary. I, I've met sweet Dobermans. You don't have to send me an email telling me that Dobermans are great. I, I know, I'm, I'm aware, but Dobermans, I, I've always thought that Rottweilers, well, I know they're also very powerful and, and can be uh, dangerous. Rottweilers are kind of cute and i've always liked i've always been kind of a rotty fan uh people like rotties a lot i did not know until we found out yesterday with our expert on the show that uh, german shepherds were number one in the bite department that was something of of a surprise to me i I did not think that that was i would have thought it was pit bulls quite honestly Uh, and there are so many of them whenever i go on these sites and i've gone on these sites a little bit whenever i go on these sites to check out uh what's available for adoption if you are willing to adopt uh, a pit bull or even more so a mixed pit, we, we do we not? We, I don't think we say mutt anymore, right? A mixed a mixed breed dog. That's what we're supposed to say. Or uh, I, I'm not even sure what the proper terminology. They're, if it's a fancy mix, then it's a designer dog, like a a, a a cockapoo or something like that. Is that a isn't that one a cocker spaniel and a poodle? Or uh, and the the Obamas had a. Um, what uh they had a I forget what it was what it was called a where it was a Portuguese water dog oh no that was a purebred but there are people like these these dogs that are some of them are hypoallergenic which I know gets them it gets everyone excited but anyway I'm thinking one day team one day I'm gonna get a dog I'm gonna make it happen hopefully sooner rather than later I got a few things on the plate gotta get a dog gotta like try to get engaged at some point you know that would be nice maybe even some little little bucks. Uh, but I digress. Wow, what a huge digression. Uh, so, yes, dogs, pit bulls, movies, you know, fun stuff to talk about. We'll hit that and more 
Uh, if you want to give me a call before we close up shop today in the Freedom Hut, please do. 888-900-3393 is the number. Be back in just a few. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show. Speak your mind. 888-900-3393. I know that there are divergent uh, opinions on this one, but I get very uncomfortable when we start to see what we think of as Internet platforms playing the role of speech police. You're going to see much more of this in the months and years ahead. You're going to see a lot of this stuff underway um, and Google according to this uh, piece that I see on linked on the Drudge Report Google has banned 200 publishers since it passed a new policy against fake news um, so now they're the company has weeded out bad ads in the past now it's weeding out bad publishers this is fascinating because Google is a private company and so as good liberty-loving conservatives, we do have to keep in mind that Google is not a public utility. So they can have the procedures and policies in place that they want, of course, within the boundaries of law, but they can create codes for codes of conduct that involve, you know, don't be mean to people and don't harass people. They can do all that stuff, and they're totally allowed to. Uh, and this is... Uh, with the whole uproar over fake news, um, I think that there's, there is pressure, real pressure at the very top of Google, Yahoo, and these other sites, Facebook. Facebook's a huge one. To decide that certain publishers are just making up fake stuff and to get rid of it. Now, this is fascinating because, first of all, where, what do you do when someone starts to claim that this is or that their information is a form of parody? Uh, what do you do when all of a sudden someone is wrong sometimes but right other times or they're putting out theories that seem conspiratorial maybe they are conspiracy theories but they're right once in a while i know they have um they have guidelines now for what they're considering to be fake news but the opportunities here for this to become political are enormous and i just see this as a continued evolution of what we were dealing with in the past Look, this is before my time, although my lifetime has really coincided with the growth of alternative media in the sense of half the country having their views represented in the media uh, on the right. Nineteen, I was born in 81, so over the course of my life, Rush and the 90s and the Internet and then Fox News and then all the other conservative sites that have popped up along the way uh, and, and channels here and there, too, they offer an alternative, but for a long time, the narrative was completely dominated by one side. For a long time, there was really no answer that the other side could come up. I mean, sorry, there's really no answer to what the other side was putting out there. And there was, in a way, a monopoly on the perception of the American people that ABC, CBS, NBC, and 
NPR and some other long-standing legacy media outlets had. Now, the Internet, of course, created a change in that model, and it's a change that is becoming more and more apparent with each passing day that these huge social media platforms are increasingly where especially younger people are getting their news, um, and this is what they're turning to to find out what's going on in the world. And so whereas the monopoly before was on newspapers and TV channels, radio, of course, was the outlier, which is why they want the fairness doctrine. And there have been all of these attempts in the past to try to rein in conservative radio because the left has recognized for a long time that, yeah, conservative radio is a really powerful tool to counter the narratives that other than radio they've had a a dominant hand in for such a long time. Anyway, the Internet really ended the stranglehold, along with Fox, but the Internet ended the stranglehold that the left had on the narrative. And, of course, the left has become more left now. You know, Democrats in the 60s and 70s, or you look back at a speech that JFK would have given, and the members of the, there were at least people who were in the Democratic Party that had much more traditional values and much more comfortable with words like patriotism and all of that than what you have today. I mean, today you have this globalist, far-left, progressive party that is, is pushing for an internationalism above patriotism and a much broader, longer discussion to have another time. But it's a change. The Democratic Party has changed, has gone hard, has gone hard left, uh, particularly in the era of Obama. But the Internet allowed there to be all this competition among all these different sites, right? So you, ha you could set up a blog, and if a lot of people read it, well, then you're a successful blog, and you go from there. And a website that was doing a good job with its news coverage could compete. Well, if you can have bottlenecks now created by search engines, if search engines are in a position uh, to decide that some people are just coming up with completely fake stuff and other people are, um, you know, getting away with a little bit of shenanigans here and there, uh, now you have a sort of return to the old model. It's going to be a lot harder. If Google and Facebook's, uh, I know right now they're saying it's fake news, but look at the effort to say that Breitbart is alt-right. And alt-right meant something different when Breitbart was publishing stories by those who were deemed to be in some way connected to the alt-right. Alt-right has been really uh, largely subsumed or appropriated into the Robert Spencer white nationalist movement. But I, as I've talked to you before on the show, that wasn't always what alt-right meant, or at least that wasn't always what people who thought they were alt-right were subscribing to and were involved in. But you could very easily see a situation in the future where a site that the left hates, like a Breitbart, if there are enough complaints about it, or they say that it's advancing white supremacy. I mean, you just have to look at the verbiage used by the left and, you know, opposition to uh, affirmative action more or less means that you're, you know, a, a terrible person. You're the equivalent of a Nazi. You're a racist. You're evil. Uh, you look at the way that the left frames a lot of these discussions and news sites that you and I would think of as being completely within the bounds of legitimate discourse and you know completely acceptable for public consumption may get caught up in these new rules set up by these behemoths that have a largely monopolistic control over the flow of information over the Internet. 
So, and I do think the left sees this as a way to regain that power, to direct the conversation, to determine what is acceptable and, and what is not, even for people to read at all. It's paradoxical, right? There's a new censorship that comes from all of this. Originally, the Internet was an explosion of information for everyone to see, and so much of it was free. And that's still all true, of course. And the Internet does more and is more important with each passing year. But I think we're also seeing now that there are realities of the web that we don't always take into account. We're having these discussions about how everything is now freed up and it's a flat, it's a flat uh, com competitive field and the marketplace of ideas and all that other stuff. You look at a Google, when someone Googles a word or they're looking for something, whatever's on that first page in that Google search is everything. People rarely go to the second page and definitely even more rarely go to the third page. So whatever comes up right away on Google is an, is an immensely powerful statement about that subject matter because Google gets to determine what is there. And they say they have this algorithm, but they're clearly tweaking the algorithm and they have the ability to prevent certain sites and publishers from popping up, they're just going to get better and better at that. And some of the most successful news websites, in fact, spent a tremendous amount of resources and time trying to find ways to game SEO, search engine optimization, so that they could get better rankings, essentially be on that front page of Google or Yahoo or any of the other ones. I remember there was like Ask Jeeves for a hot second. I don't even know if that's still a thing. Uh, Ask Jeeves was a website. Uh, I think Dogpile was a, a search engine that existed for a little while. There have been a, a whole bunch of these over the years that have uh, faded away. And I've told you before, I remember the first, my first Internet experience that I really remember uh, was, other than, other, than a, other than just straight up AOL, was being in a friend's house. I think this might even be before AOL, and his dad had CompuServe. And you could go into, there were a couple of chat rooms and you, you know, one for politics, one for sports, and just there are people chatting, and that was it. Was like I was in a spaceship, man. It was crazy. Uh, I remember, I remember seeing that, and and the whole, you know, you know, obviously you've got mail, and these things that we all got used to, and then learned to forget very quickly because we changed our habits on the web. Uh, but back to the the problem that I see arising here, the evangelists that are out there for the web in Silicon Valley we're, we're quite aware of their politics. Uh, Peter Thiel, there are some exceptions, but overwhelmingly they are left. Overwhelmingly they are progressive. And this, this fight that's happening under the Trump administration and even before, of course, during the primary, this argument over the, the truth and reality and facts, and you even get into that, uh, moment of the alternative facts discussed by Kellyanne Conway, um, that is just going to become a bigger and bigger fo focal point of all this. They're going to look for ways to sift out news sources and people and information they don't like and do it under the guise of this is fake news. Do it under the guise of this is the way that we get around censorship it's really stealth censorship or it's censorship by expanding definitions to include just things you don't like and pretend that it's information that is reckless or information that is um, you know, that, that is that is unacceptable to be out there in, in the public sphere so I, I do have my concerns about this I, I see this return to an, an era 
where the left has such a dominance over the narrative day in and day out, and Google and Facebook and these other platforms are just going to play a very big role in all of this. Um, they're going to be really involved in uh, determining what you see. And keep in mind, this isn't about this isn't a First Amendment issue in terms of the law. Maybe the spirit of the First Amendment, free exchange of ideas and free expression. But if Facebook wants to show you Huffington Post all day long, that's what they can do. They can do that. And if they want to hide the blaze from you, if they want to hide National Review from you and Fox News, they can do that. And the only way you can deal with it is to be aware and to try and reward search engines and sites that don't engage in this kind of stuff. But keep in mind, when you're talking about Google, I mean, how many of you use Google? Such a These companies also just have giant ATM machines that they run in the, in the sense they just, with the public stock, they've got so much money. They can do whatever they want. But I like corporations. Just not corporations that can brainwash the whole country if they choose to, more or less, without anyone being able to stand in their way. That's a little, it's a little terrifying. It's the way the media used to be. They want, they want that back. I mean, could you imagine anything that would be cooler than being a network anchor back in the 60s or the 70s? No one really to challenge you. No one can even find your old broadcast. You just go on TV, create a brand night after night, say whatever the heck you want. No accountability. You just look the part, sound the part, get paid a lot of money. Sound like Ron Burgundy, but hey, probably was a lot of fun. All right, team, we got more. Um, I'll be back in just a second. 888-900-3393 if you want to sneak in a call before we close out. Otherwise, back in a few. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Oh, team, so good to have you with me here today. Uh, I'm in for Rush tomorrow, so this is really my last opportunity for this week to get a chance uh, to talk to you. And uh, I have all sorts of, well, first of all, anytime I get to fill in for Rush is obviously, I I, I was about to say it's it's a rush, but I didn't mean that as a terrible pun. But it is so cool, and, and every time I do it, I, I try to keep Facebook and Twitter open because I know I can get some members of the team getting me fired up and making sure that I uh, do a, a Team Buck-worthy show on the very large platform, the much bigger platform of the EIB. Um, so I appreciate those of you that can that can uh, join me for that. It does feel like you give me home team advantage even when I'm playing an away game, although, you know, Rush is folks are always so good to me even the audience i'm talking about uh, they're always very kind and very supportive when i do all of that and i was been thinking a lot about this recently i've been doing radio now it'll be gosh i think it's i think this might be the fourth i think i'm coming on the fourth year of radio here shortly in uh well right around now i think i started four years ago uh, i should have done the math and made sure that i'm not running off the rails yeah i think it was four years ago i've been doing radio for four years um, and all many of you have been with me for those four years. You really do feel like uh, friends and and my extended radio family, as I say, and I really mean that. I, I spend a lot of time with all of you, and because of 
uh, the ways we can communicate, email, you can call in and Facebook and Twitter and, and all the rest of it, I, I do feel very much like I know a lot of you. Um, I don't have anything specific to share with you right now um, on this front, but I would just say that there's some really exciting stuff on the horizon, and I'm really glad that I have all of you with me because I'm looking at some very interesting ways to expand on what I'm doing here with you day in and day out on the Freedom Hunt. Obviously, many of you have seen me popping up on Fox more. Uh, we're looking to take the Freedom Hunt. We're already national, but we're looking to make this uh, quite a big thing and, and to, to expand our own family here. And I'm, I'm thinking, I'm hoping that in the days ahead, I'll have some really exciting announcements about Team Buck and additional ways to listen to Team Buck and all sorts of things like that. So I know that's vague, but I just wanted to give you that here on Thursday before we head off uh, into the weekend so I won't be with you tomorrow. I will be with you on Monday. As always, as always, Shields High. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.